Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast with Steve Schellenberger. You're listening to the show that is guaranteed to help you transform your life and achieve results that otherwise would have seemed difficult or even impossible. In each episode, you'll learn from someone who has achieved extraordinary goals. Steve is the number one national best-selling author. He's successfully started 11 businesses in three separate industries. He is a highly sought-after keynote speaker and corporate trainer for organizations around the world, an executive coach, the father of six, and the founder of Becoming Your Best Global Leadership. Here is Mr. Steve Schallenberger. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you might be in the world today. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we have an extraordinary guest today that has rocked the world for good. Uh, welcome, Anson Dorrance. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Well, good. Well, thank you for taking the time. And before we get started, I'd like to take a little moment and give you a background on uh, Coach Dorrance, the single most successful coach in any sport in all intercollegiate athletes and uh, athletics. Dorrance is credited with having set the standard for women soccer worldwide when as the first U.S. women's national coach. His 1991 team won the first FIFA Women's World Championship with an extraordinary attacking style. And for this feat, Coach Dorrance and his team were awarded the National Soccer Hall of Fame Medal of Honor. Now that's an amazing accomplishment in the soccer world. He is named the National Coach of the Year on many occasions in his role as head coach of the University of North Carolina Women's Soccer Program. In his 37th year of his collegiate coaching career, Coach Dorrance has a staggering 792 wins, 63 losses, and 32 ties. What, what a record. And to go along with that, 22 national championships, which represents the best NCAA record for any coach in any Division I sport nationwide. And his list goes on and on. It's, it's just a literal who's a... Uh, who's who's of coaching and in the soccer world. Uh, Coach Dorrance has co-authored two best-selling books uh, for coaches and players. One of them is named Training Soccer Champions and the other, The Vision of a Champion. These are terrific. Uh, He he was actually born in Bombay, India, and uh, they have, he and his wife, uh, Miss Liz, have three uh, children. So, I've been grateful for Anson's uh, interest and encouragement in what I'm doing. He was kind enough to be an endorser for Becoming Your Best. So let's get rolling, Uh, Anson. Here we go. (laughs) Let's start right off. Tell us about your background. Uh, As you think about yourself growing up as a young person, young man, what were some turning points that helped prepare you for the future? Well, I had a very privileged upbringing. I was uh, born and raised overseas uh, by uh, uh, American parents, and um, I loved uh, uh, my youth. Uh, I was born in Bombay, India. We lived there for a couple years, then the family moved to Calcutta. Uh, then we moved to Nairobi, Kenya. From there to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where I met uh, the woman I was going to marry. We met in the second grade. Uh, uh, then we went to... Uh, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, and then Brussels, Belgium, and then uh, I finished up at a Swiss boarding school in Freiburg, Switzerland before I came to school in the United States for college. 
And uh, in between all of these uh, uh, places we lived, we'd spend six months on a tobacco farm in Lewisburg, North Carolina, intermixed with uh, a short stay in uh, Oakland, California, and another short flight Plains, New York. So uh, uh, I just led a privileged life. Uh, I uh, love traveling all over the world. I think it uh, helped shape my view of the world and certainly impacted on my uh, interest in uh, uh, the game of soccer because I, I played it a bit when I was overseas. Um, but it was just an incredibly uh, uh, rich uh, life as, as a young man, uh, and I certainly learned a lot of things uh, uh, in every place we lived. Wow, <laughs> what an experience, and what was it like to live in these places? Well, you know what, uh, what really benefited me as a, uh, as a national soccer coach was uh, of this understanding of this love-hate relationship that the world has uh, with the United States. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, competing in the uh, world arena was visceral. Uh, I mean, I spent my lifetime defending American foreign policy, and so, uh, and I knew this this love-hate relationship that each country had with us. And so, trust me, when I was on the uh, field as a U.S. Women's National Coach, uh, training my kids to compete in the world arena, every single uh, victory was very important and meaningful for me uh, because of, uh, of this defense I've had of the United States. And here I had a chance. Uh, in the world game to compete with the world. And uh, uh, and for me, that was a fantastic privilege that I took very seriously. Well, what a tremendous perspective. And I'll bet that perspective helped you really celebrate differences in people. And, and how important has that been for you? Well, it was important. I think what you end up uh, gaining uh, as a, a world traveler is uh, uh, an extraordinary acceptance uh, but also uh, an appreciation for uh, all the different people in the world and also their culture. And I think it gave me a, a tremendous sort of cosmopolitan background that uh, put me in a unique position as a, as a young man uh, that I've certainly kept as an adult. As anyone knows, uh, you see the, the world through the lens of your own experiences, and my experiences were uh, wide and varied, and I think it really uh, made a huge difference uh, uh, in the way uh, I look at the world, I look at my place in it, uh, uh, and even uh, things uh, that uh, right now we're addressing on a regular basis uh, about gender difference uh, uh, and the way culture impacts on uh, uh, the way we treat each other as, as, as separate genders. And I think this really benefited me when I was given a women's team for the first time uh, in 1979, because when I was hired here at UNC, I wasn't hired to coach the women. I was hired to coach the men's team I had played on. So uh, this uh, uh, perspective I was given uh, uh, was also invaluable for me uh, uh, when I had this opportunity to coach women for the first time. Well, that's a tremendous uh, perspective. One of the things that I've observed in outstanding leaders is that they find the way to uh, bring the best out of each person. Uh, and they realize that people have the capacity to contribute, to make things better. And and so when you're so open like that, it, it just brings out a, a greater resource that's available to you. Now, I think one, uh, yeah, go one ahead. Advantage, yeah. Yeah, one advantage it did give me is um, um, certainly with this background, uh, I understood that we're all different because uh, I had experienced that uh, from uh, moving from one culture to another. Uh, so as a result, uh, you develop a sort of a, an agility 
uh, growing up because you are in these different cultures to respect uh, uh, the important boundaries that each culture has. And I think what that uh, helped me with was appreciating that everyone was different. Everyone was motivated differently. Uh, everyone had different dreams, uh, but also different potential. Uh, and uh, what you learn to embrace with your experiences uh, is the fact that uh, uh, you can value everyone that you're given on your team for whatever positive quality they cared to bring. Well, what a wonderful enabling uh, leadership quality that is. Now, you talked about you played uh, soccer and then were, was given the opportunity to become the coach. Tell us your background on about becoming a coach. Is this something that you wanted to do? What was the inspiration that led to that? I never had ambitions of coaching. Um, <laughs> Um, I was a dutiful son. Uh, my father uh, uh, felt I would make an excellent attorney, so uh, he was starting his own oil company, and he wanted me to be his corporate attorney. The family joke at the time was at least I wouldn't have a tendency to steal from my own estate. <laughs> so uh, I, I loved my father. I was a dutiful son. Uh, he wanted me to go to law school. Uh, I'll be completely honest with you. I was not the most committed student as an undergraduate at the University of North Carolina. Uh, but I did love my father, and he thought this would be a great choice for me. Uh, and so I ended up uh, going to uh, law school uh, because of him. Um, and um, in order to pay for law school, uh, the coach that I had played for at UNC, a, a wonderful gentleman by the name of Dr. Marvin Allen, uh, was a part-time soccer coach and a full-time instructor in our physical education department here at the University of North Carolina. Um, he... Uh, appreciated me as a player, I guess, and liked me. Um, I was loyal to him, and um, and as a result, when he was stepping down as our uh, uh, soccer coach at the University of North Carolina, he went in and told our athletic director, a wonderful gentleman by the name of Bill Covey, uh, that uh, I would be an extraordinary successor for him. Uh, and uh, as a result, with absolutely no coaching resume, and being incredibly young, Bill Covey, extended me a chance to coach uh, the men's team as a part-time coach uh, while I was getting my law degree. And then uh, when I was finishing up my law degree, I was uh, going four years. Usually you finish your law degree in three. But in order to coach, I took a, cor a course shy each semester. So it was taking me into my fourth year to finish the degree. Uh, he took me out to look at this women's club team play. And then afterwards, after I told him that it looked like a pretty well-organized club, they had some nice players, he extended me a chance to be a full-time coach uh, by uh, coaching the men and women. Uh, and, of course, uh, I was trying to, you know, finish the law degree uh, while I was coaching the two teams, and it was exasperating and obviously overwhelming. And I remember going home uh, one day, and, you know, I had to break the horrible news to my wife that uh, – one of these things had to go, and I can just, uh, I had imagined this crestfallen look on her face as this poor woman that thought she was going to, you know, uh, marry a, <laughs> a wealthy corporate attorney was now, and she unfortunately had saddled herself with, you know, uh, a soccer coach, and uh, she and uh, uh, and I were going to slowly starve to death. Um, but, you know, bless her heart, uh, she knew I absolutely loved this. And uh, she was all in with me uh, to uh, do something I absolutely love. And obviously, looking back, it was an extraordinary decision. Uh, uh, and uh, she and I have really loved uh, uh, this life we've built together here in Chapel Hill, raising a, a wonderful family. Um, but at the time, 
there was nothing rational about uh, this move um, into uh, sort of the the murky unknown of the future with uh, this um, <clears throat> coaching profession as a foundation for my future. Uh, but I'm certainly glad uh, we took this uh, leap of faith, um, and uh, uh, we have never looked back. Oh, that is a great story, and thank you for sharing it. Uh, there is something to be said of following your heart, of uh, reaching down inside and saying, you know, I just have this feeling I need to do this. And, and of course, gaining uh, the experience and knowledge in other fields like you did in the law background, that can be an enormous help for us, but we may not always choose to go that direction. So how did that feel to follow your heart? Well, you know, obviously it uh, <laughs> uh, had, you know, was a bit nerve-wracking because, uh, you know, you close off this potentially uh, lucrative career. Uh, and at the time, uh, you know, coaching uh, collegiate soccer wasn't really much of a profession. Um, it, the game was being built in this country, and certainly the women's game was nowhere to be seen uh, when I was hired as the men's coach in 1976. <clears throat> but the cool thing about jumping in with the women in 79 uh, and coaching men and women for the next 10 years is I really had an opportunity to build uh, uh, this new game. Uh, so I had opportunities as a young coach uh, of women I never would have been given on the men's side uh, to impact on uh, the evolution of the game, to impact on promoting the game, uh, to impact on so many different levels of, uh, that I certainly would not have had on the men's side. So uh, it was gamble that sort of paid off because I got to help pioneer a, a sport. I had chances in the sport I never would have had on the uh, men's side. And looking back, uh, it was just uh, obviously fortuitous, and certainly a lot of it was very lucky. Uh, but I absolutely loved being a part of uh, uh, this new game. Okay, great. So 22 national championships. <laughs> wow. That is an accomplishment achieved by very few people. So how did you do it? <laughs> well, again, uh, uh, what an advantage for me to be uh, one of the sports pioneers. <clears throat> Uh, so I got a head start uh, on a lot of other programs. Uh, we were the first varsity in the South. Um, so we had a recruiting opportunity that was unique, uh, being one of the first teams. Uh, uh, so we were very aggressive in recruiting. And I also think that, like, my men's background, coaching in the ACC also contributed to my early success with the women because uh, I was coaching at the highest level of the men's game collegiately on the men's side. And so I think that gave me a lot of uh, experience as a young coach uh, to coach at such an elite collegiate level on the men's side. So when I was given the women's team, uh, I did have some coaching experience because of the men. Uh, I had huge energy because of my age. Uh, and then I had a chance to really impact. Uh, so I think uh, uh, we put ourselves in a wonderful position early. Um, we just were relentless in our ambition to uh, uh, make this game a real game on the women's side. Uh, I think that really benefited us in the early recruiting years. Uh, we had a chance to win a couple early. We certainly used that to try to win a couple more, and it snowballed. Uh, then I had a chance to coach the U.S. women's full national team in 1986. That was also obviously a huge recruiting advantage for me uh, because that gives you wonderful visibility. And a part of that recruiting advantage is in that first Women's World Cup in 1991, we won. And um, uh, that was um, really exciting for me. And the cool thing about this uh, national team progression is when I was hired as the U.S. Uh, uh, women's national coach, as a part-time national coach, because I was still coaching the men and women at UNC, 
Um, the U.S. had never won an international game, and by the time I retired uh, uh, after the 91 World Championship, we were world champions, so that was really cool. Uh, that also certainly benefited me in recruiting uh, with our success in the world arena. Um, and uh, this play between my collegiate team and the national team was a wonderful one because I would look at the problems we were having in the world arena with the U.S. women's national team. I'd bring those problems back to my collegiate arena where a lot of the players on my roster were also on my full team, and I would try to solve those problems in training and then take these solutions back to the U.S. full team um, once I was back with them. And so there's a wonderful sort of relationship between what I was doing with the full team and what I was doing with my college kids. And I think that was a huge advantage for me as well. Okay, there's so many thoughts running through my mind. One of them is, in your early career, how much experience that you were gaining just by the very fact you're coaching two teams. And, 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 and so the book, The Outlier, of course, much of success comes to those that really practice and work hard at it. Uh, but there's also another dimension, and I'd, I'd like to see if you could take a minute on this, and it's, we talk about in our seminars that being highly successful leaders, uh, becoming your best is both a mindset, it's how we think about things, but it's also a skill set, and you can't really do one without the other. They're both required to achieve that excellence. What was your mindset uh, at that early time? You, you had to be thinking about becoming the best of what you did. Do you can you talk about that a moment, how important that is for you and for your team, and how does it impact the stuff that you do? Well, that's, a, first of all, a, a wonderful question, uh, uh, because I did have ambitions as a young man to try to be the, the absolute best I could be, and I wanted to be the best I could be in this game in every conceivable arena. Uh, if you look in the uh, uh, preface to uh, the uh, first book I wrote, Training Soccer Champions, you can even see uh, the uh, the themes of my ambition strewn in this preface uh, because I picked all these different mentors. And the mentors I picked in our game were the people that, in my opinion, were the absolute best of one aspect of coaching. And uh, so I selected them as my mentors in all these different areas. So I wanted to be not just a great coach in practice, but a, a great coach in games. I wanted to be a great clinician. I wanted to be a great public speaker. Uh, I wanted to be a motivational figure. I wanted to have all these different platforms that all my different mentors uh, had. And I found these mentors because of some quality in them I really loved. I remember uh, uh, being a young coach and attending uh, training sessions that Bobby Gansler, one of the former U.S. men's national coaches, would run. And the thing I loved about him and the, the quality I loved to replicate in him was this amazing presence that he would have in a practice. So I would even select uh, uh, in my mentors individual qualities that I thought set them apart. So if you break down your ambitions into all these different categories and find the best person in each category and then set as your uh, dream to try to be uh, that great quality that this a coach had in this one single area. Uh, I could see, even in looking back on the stuff I wrote as a young coach, uh, this extraordinary ambition I had to be the best I could be in almost every conceivable area in coaching. Uh, so um, I think that factored into uh, my evolution as a young coach. Uh, the other thing that had a huge impact, and I didn't realize it at the time, in fact, it was a character flaw that uh, 
um, had me, uh, I guess, embrace this. But looking back, I'm so glad I did it. I was one of these guys that never turned down uh, a request. So uh, similar to me agreeing to, to speak with you, um, any chance to speak somewhere or give a clinic somewhere or uh, running a training environment somewhere, uh, I would uh, say yes. And, of course, it was overwhelming in terms of the time commitment I made to all these different things I was asked to do. <clears throat> Um, I really feel like it um, uh, it sharpened me and polished me. Um, it's interesting now. Uh, I was on this uh, flight to College Station, Texas, from Houston, and I was going in to give a a, a speech at an athletic department banquet. And I was in a small plane because obviously Houston to College Station is a very short double jump. So I was in a puddle jumper, and the weather wasn't very good. So this puddle jumper was all over the sky. <clears throat> and I was really nervous in this flight because I'm not one of these comfortable flyers anyway. Uh, so I grabbed the, the in-flight magazine to try to calm my nerves. And sure enough, I turned to uh, uh, this article on man's greatest fears. And here I am on a flight where I'm about to die. <laughs> and I learned that the only thing you know, man feared worse than death was public speaking. So if I survived the flight, <clears throat> I had to speak. Uh, and so uh, what was interesting about my early education uh, as a young man is I tried to hone myself in all these different areas. Uh, and honestly, the way you end up becoming uh, an effective public speaker is basically to do it. Um, and years later, like about two or three years ago, uh, I'm reading this article in Time magazine. I think it was a cover article on, on introversion. And I'm reading this thing, and of course, I'm thinking at the time I'm an extrovert, and they had a 20-question quiz in the Time magazine that I took. 18 out of the 20 questions, I answered like an introvert. So all this time, <laughs> I thought I was an extrovert, and I'm not. Uh, I am an introvert, and that explained so much to me, because even though I had agreed to do all these different things growing up, um, it was nothing I would have pursued naturally. Um, but because I couldn't say no to anything, uh, it really sharpened and polished uh, almost every aspect of uh, the things I was ambitious towards, and I think it made a huge uh, uh, difference in my evolution. Oh, thank you for sharing those. What what great uh, answers and and uh, sharing of these experiences. And I, for our listeners, wow, those are two big keys to success: the mindset of thinking. Uh, what does a champion look like? I want to be a champion. I want to be the very best in each category. Well, this is what drives uh, the opportunity that opens doors. But look how Anson uh, also acquired skills. He looked at people that were among the best. He learned from them. So uh, thank you for sharing that. That is a that's an inspiration, and and also for just agreeing to help others. Uh, that's a that's a great quality. Well, one of the things that we face in life is constant change, and you know, there, and for you, there's new players every year, new competitors, <laughs> changes in the sport. So, how do you maintain a success culture with all of that change? In other words, how do you sustain it from year to year and stay ahead of the game? Well, obviously, you've got to maintain a a, a curiosity about uh, your own evolution. You've got to maintain a curiosity about where your game is headed and the different things in your game that can help you get to the cutting edge. And I think if we're too grounded in has what, what's made us successful in the past, 
I think you end up losing your edge. And I think uh, a lot of the extraordinary coaches that, you know, struggle near the end of their careers, I think are people that are too uh, uh, attached to what made them successful in the past. I also think as you get older, uh, what starts to occur is, uh, let's face it, it's, 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 it's human nature. You're going to start to lose energy. So then what's absolutely critical is that you have the um, courage uh, to delegate more and more uh, to a staff, but also the, um, the strength uh, to hire new people onto your staff that can do uh, a lot of this uh, uh, work that requires extraordinary energy for you uh, and your uh, culture uh, to remain a viable entity. It's certainly in something like competitive athletics where your report card is a matter of public record. So I think um, uh, these are just wonderful challenges. And what ends up happening, honestly, to most people in my profession, with few exceptions, is uh, the constant stress of having to attain uh, a high standard just eventually grates on you and you end up uh, cashiering out of your of this profession that you love. One of my favorite statements from one of my mentors, the legendary former basketball coach at the University of North Carolina, Dean Smith, and of course Dean Smith, uh, for those uh, that might not know who this great man is, was the collegiate coach for Michael Jordan. One of the things I loved about him is when he was retiring, he became uh, uh, Sports Illustrated uh, uh, Sportsman of the Year. And uh, Sports Illustrated did a wonderful uh, article on him as he was retiring. And one of the lines I will never forget about this article in Sports Illustrated is when the guy asked him, you know, what are you most proud of? His line was really interesting. And the only people that I think would really understand it and appreciate it are the people in the coaching profession. Because it wasn't one of these, you know, uh, incredibly profound statements because it doesn't sound like much unless you've coached. And his line was, the thing I am most proud of in coaching is that I retired a coach. Because what most coaches do after they've been successful is they escape into athletic administration. And the thing that's so difficult about coaching is having the courage to lay your reputation on the line every single year because let's face it, people are chasing you. Uh, if you're elite, they're dying to devour you. <laughs> and what a great escape hatches are available for you because, yeah, you can just sort of retire into, uh, you know, color commentary or, uh, you know, athletic administration where there's absolutely no pressure on you to uh, basically uh, beat people that are, you know, coming after you. Uh, it's a wonderfully benign form of respectable retirement. Uh, but it takes a heck of a lot of courage to continue to lay your reputation on the line, especially after it's been established. So um, I really appreciate that line uh, that Dean Smith shared with us. I know exactly what he means. His boy, it would be so easy for me right now to drift into some sort of, you know, uh, athletic consulting firm or uh, you know, join some leadership institute or become an athletic administrator. Uh, but Dean Smith was one of my great mentors, and I know what he's saying because I don't want to do that. I want to hang in there like grim death, uh, laying my <laughs> reputation on the line every single season, letting the young guns come after me, uh, and seeing if I can continue to do it. Um, and, um, and I think it takes uh, extraordinary courage to keep doing that. 
because you see so many who escape. Um, and it's a respectable escape. Uh, but I love the fact that Dean knew that this was one of the hardest things he, he did was to just hang in there uh, and retire a coach. And I'm going to try to do the same thing. Well, that's great. Well, that's laying down the gauntlet right there. It's just throwing it down, and it applies to really every one of us. It's how do we be the very best at what we do to where we just can't do it anymore. And, and so uh, thank you for that. Now, one last question, and then we're out of time. I've just gone so fast. There are a lot of our listeners that want to bring out the best within their, their families, their, their teams, and their organization. So from your perspective, what can people do to bring out the best from their players? Honestly, and I've learned this through my coaching uh, uh, career, is the most critical thing that you should concentrate on as a coach, and this is going to seem absolutely counterintuitive, is character development. If you can spend time developing the character of the young men and young women that uh, you coach, that's going to pay you back in spades. Um, it's going to pay you back in spades, not just on the field in terms of winning and losing, but it's going to pay you back in spades in terms of the richness of your uh, coaching experience, the richness of your life, but also the satisfaction with doing something that has value. Because sports in itself has no real value. The only value it has, in my opinion, is the way it can uh, help us to connect interpersonally, but also the way it can shape who we are uh, and uh, the people that we become. And um, it is counterintuitive, but uh, I honestly feel that one of the best things we do here are the uh, 12 core values uh, that we believe in here at the University of North Carolina. And if there's a way on uh, your uh, podcast to somehow uh, share a link to uh, the UNC Women's Soccer's 12 Core Values. I think if the people read those, uh, Steve, I think they will see uh, the foundation of what I genuinely believe is the most critical aspects of what we do here at the University of North Carolina. Okay, well, that's great. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, Anson, I sure like the number 12. <laughs> That's in becoming your best. We have the 12 principles of highly successful leaders. I can't wait to go to your website and, <laughs> and uh, see some of the similarities, perhaps. Well, there you have it. Uh, this is Anson Dorrance. We've been talking with the winner of 22 NCAA championships. Um, so, Anson, uh, how can our listeners find out more about what you're doing at UNC? Or uh, Tell us about that website one more time so that we have this. Well, you know, it's so easy to Google these days. If uh, someone Googles, you know, UNC's core value, UNC women's soccer core value, so uh, it's been up there. You can get it. Uh, also, uh, there's been a great uh, conference uh, organized by a friend of mine, uh, Brett Ledbetter, who uh, just wrote a great book about uh, what drives winning. And uh, I had a chance to present at his conference, uh, his What Drives Winning conference. And so if someone would plug into that, uh, they will see a presentation I made basically on character uh, at that uh, uh, conference. And I think that will get to the core of a lot of the things that you and I have chatted about here. And those things are easily accessible to anyone that has any sort of agility with uh, his or her phone or 
his or her computer. Uh, so chase those things down. I think uh, people will find it fascinating and I think interesting, and I think it'll have value. Well, wonderful. I can't wait to uh, to see those and uh, and to review them. Well, thank you, Anson, for being part of this show today. It's been a delight uh, visiting together. Well, Steve, I've enjoyed it myself. Thank you. You bet. Well, you've done such a, a fabulous job, and we wish you and your teams all the best uh, as you're making a difference in the world, not only at a uh, athletic collegiate level, but in the lives of the people that you're working with. And, and to all of our listeners, never forget, you too can make a difference every single day of your lives. I'm Steve Schallenberger with Becoming Your Best Global Leadership, wishing you a great day. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Becoming Your Best podcast. We want to know what your big takeaways were, so head on over to becomingyourbest.com and you can find all the information about the podcast right there as well as the show notes page where we'd love to hear what you thought about each and every single episode. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please go subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a rating and review. A rating and review is by far the best way for you to show your appreciation for the show because it helps other people find out about the show and decide if this is the podcast for them. So now it's all in your hands. It's time for you to go out there to take action and truly start becoming your best.